Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. Fresh off a 5% pay raise, federal employees can look forward to some other enhancements coming their way, like the possibility of another hefty pay raise next year. For more on this and a few other matters, the Vice President for Policy and Programs at the National Active and Retired Federal Employees Association, John Hatton. John, good to have you back. Thank you for having me. And let's talk about the FAIR Act, federal pay rate increase for 2025. This is kind of a perennial where they look for not double digits, but high single digits. Yeah. And so this is kind of the marker for members of Congress pushing for federal pay raises. In this case, Congressman Jerry Connolly in the House and Senator Schatz in the Senate. And I would say this is more of a negotiating tool for them in terms of trying to put this marker down as you get into the appropriation season. So the federal pay raise is typically based off of the most recent change in the employment cost index for private sector wages and salaries. So if you're looking at that uh, that ended in 2023, it's 4.5%. That's typically reduced down by half a percent, down to four for that across the board pay increase. That's probably what you're going to expect to see in Biden's budget if they're looking to keep that same pay rate policy going forward, then they include a certain amount in this case, in recent cases, 0.5% for locality pay. The FAIR Act says, let's go a little bit higher on locality pay. There's a large pay gap between federal employee pay and similar private sector jobs of 27%. So they're looking for a 3.4% increase in locality instead of that 0.5 percentage point increase. And locality is spreading like wildfire in some sense, too. Every year there are (laughs) new regions, and you wonder, how did that get to be a locality pay? It's harder to find places that aren't locality pay. Yeah, there's still this general rest of U.S. locality pay, which actually also increases from the base, you know, to the extent different geographic areas continue to be above that. You're going to have these new locality pay areas crop up. But, you know, certainly in large metropolitan areas, whether it's San Francisco or New York or in the D.C. area, people are paid more because the cost of living is higher and wages are higher. So it is good policy, I think, to adjust pay for you know what the market rate is in that area. And what is the latest thinking on whether federal employees are paid more or less than their counterparts in the private sector? I've always felt that, yes, some of them are underpaid. Some of them are actually better than the private sector. I don't think there's any single index that makes any sense because of the range of jobs involved. Yeah. What the federal government uses is the Federal Salary Council, and they try to match job to job, similar private sector jobs with the federal jobs and come up with some percentage difference, which is supposed to inform the changes in locality pay. And they found that taking that all in aggregate, there's a 27 percent difference where the private sector gets paid more than federal jobs. Now, that's not taking into account benefits. The Congressional Budget Office has looked at this before. They look at less of a job-to-job comparison and more of a human capital approach. So people with similar experience, people with similar educational backgrounds, and what are they getting paid? And they find kind of the most educated in the federal workforce are paid less than their private sector counterparts. But if you get down the lower educational levels, they're actually paid a little bit more when you're taking into account benefits and everything else. So depends on how you're analyzing it. It's complicated. But I think certainly there are plenty of cases where, you know, pay needs to go up to be competitive with the private sector in recruitment. And in the last couple of years, you've probably noticed, as we have, that lots of agencies are getting spot authority to offer extra pay, extra benefits, extra hiring eases for 
strategically important jobs they might need. It's fairly widespread, though. Yeah, I think that's one of the justifications for the FAIR Act or trying to try to close that locality pay gap is how much agencies are pushing for these special pay authorities so that they can actually recruit people because what is being provided under the basic or general schedule system isn't enough. So I don't know if the in any one year that locality pay increase is going to be 27%, but little inches upward would help prevent kind of these situations where agencies are really struggling to recruit people because their pay is low. Yeah, especially in an age when a pack of potato chips at the grocery store is five bucks. We're speaking with John Hatton, Vice President for Policy and Programs at the National Active and Retired Federal Employees Association, NARF. And the OPM data breach, this was back in 2015, kids, but it still resonates, doesn't (laughs) it? And there is something that would extend protection for people's identities continuing. Tell us what's going on there. Yeah, so just as a reminder, people, OPM allowed their database to be breached and personally identifiable information was revealed. Now, Congress responded to that by providing identity theft protection up to $5 million in insurance, but only for like the next 10 years when they include it in an appropriations bill. So there's an effort to extend that. Information is out there. It hasn't been put back in the box. So people may still need that protection resulting from that breach. So Delegate Eleanor Holmes Norton introduced a bill to extend it. I think this will probably get a little bit more attention as we get closer to that expiration date. But it's just a reminder to people that, yes, your data still may be out there. You still may need some of this protection. And it should be the obligation of the federal government, which gave it away, to provide you with that identity theft protection. The strange thing about that data is that it never did manifest itself in any obvious way. There wasn't some big, giant phishing attack that hit you know, a million federal employees or anything, no one really knew what happened to it or where it went or if it ever was used in some manner. Yeah, I think it's probably difficult to actually parse out whether if you do have some identity theft or fraud attack on you, if it came from that OPM data breach or a target breach or something else, there's data hacks all over the place. OPM is not the only place to be exposed in this realm. So I think the danger becomes when People can collect data from multiple sources and starts piecing together and piecing together, and they get a much clearer picture of you and your identity and kind of how you operate. You know, the one piece of data or the one attack may not be itself the most, but certainly is relevant in this case. Right. And the other thing about such data, it does go stale because people change jobs, they move and so forth. So you got to act quick on it, especially if you're going to launch a phishing attack based on what you know about True. that person and, at and that moment. True. And some of that's email addresses, but... I think in this case, you're talking about social security numbers, CSA numbers, just identities and addresses now if you've moved. And certainly there was concerns about people who were in intelligence agencies, people whose identities has been protected based on their top secret clearances or otherwise. And eventually you retire and then you worry about pharmacy benefits and Medicare (laughs) Part D. Haven't had the pleasure of navigating those shoals yet, but it's complicated. But now there is a bipartisan bill that would help with Medicare Part D and drug costs. Yeah, the House Committee on Oversight and Accountability advanced a bill that applies to FEHB. Uh, That was their jurisdiction. This was also going through Energy and Commerce and Ways and Means has to take it up as well. And it's just an effort and it's nice to see some bipartisanship on this issue of drug pricing. And that would apply to federal retirees through FEHB. And now that more plans are integrating with Medicare Part D through that as well. And just prohibit some practices like the PBMs negotiate drug prices 
and they may get rebates, but they may not pass that rebate on to you as a consumer or the insurance companies that you're paying the premiums for, for those claims. They may steer you to different pharmacies, so you can't go to the pharmacy you want. So some common sense legislation, getting at some drug pricing and getting at some of these practices that reduce your choice. So it's good to see some bipartisanship even in the midst of a very partisan environment that some business can still get done and some improvements can still be made. Yeah, that idea of the pharmacy benefits manager, I guess it's had a good theory in that someone third party would argue with drug companies and get prices down, but it's kind of turned into a profit center almost where the savings don't necessarily get passed on to the actual buyer. Right now they have an incentive to negotiate and get lower prices, but they don't have the incentive to necessarily pass that on to the consumer as thoroughly as they should or could. John Hatton is vice president for policy and programs at the National Active and Retired Federal Employees Association. As always, thanks so much. Thank you. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Kolmstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Excellent. We're we're going through a a culture project at our work. Oh, great. It's it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or 
how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, And we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency and I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, 
I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, Mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus. Isn't that a great title? I just love the title Chief People Officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture And what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful? So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with an intentional focus on culture. Because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth, and um, engagement programs and listening programs. That's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how how are things going, Um, because we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. 
neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about, can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, And I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.